Miss Canning was a first-year Spanish teacher in 1993 at Walter R. Suddling Junior High School in Palatine, Illinois. And I, as an eighth grader, felt it was my duty to welcome her appropriately to the awkward middle school years. I wish I could say that I and my friends were kind and gracious, welcoming this new teacher. But like a dog sensing fear, my friends and I sensed the trepidation of this young first-year teacher, and we pounced on it. We were brutal. We constantly disrupted class. We did not respect her authority. We made her first year very, very difficult. Miss Canning soon became very, very weary of our behavior. The teachers in the crowd understand those students. I'll never forget that day when she called me into the hallway and said, Dave, I, I just don't get it. All your teachers talk about you being a great student. You're kind, you're respectful. I, I just don't see it. You are rude, disrespectful, and you have made this year awful for me. I am just tired of your behavior. Now, I always knew my behavior was wrong, but it wasn't until that moment that I was called out on my sin that I realized how bad my actions were and how they hurt my teacher. I was wearying her with my poor behavior. Maybe you have felt like Miss Canning, tired, frustrated, weary with the poor behavior and attitude of others in your life. Maybe as a boss, weary with the poor performance and the effort of an employee or as a coach, weary with the, seeing your team make the same mistakes over and over again. Or as a parent, weary of a, the constant arguing and complaining of your children. Or maybe you felt like me, as a young, embarrassed junior high school student called out on your poor and sinful behavior. Maybe your behavior was that wearied and frustrated and angered people and the authority in your own life. Maybe actions have exhausted or are exhausting the patience of your parents now or your supervisor. Maybe your actions are exhausting even the patience of God. God is slow to anger, praise God, abounding in steadfast love. He is kind and patient. And yet God grows weary of his people when they turn their sinful hearts from him and towards the world. Miss Canning's confrontation of me in that hallway changed me and my relationship with the rest of the year. I became a model student and she became one of my favorite teachers. As I was confronted in that hallway, God calls his people into a hallway, if you will, to confront them of their wearying behavior from the prophet Malachi. Israel needed to be confronted with their sin so that they would repent and honor the Lord. So today I want to ask you five questions through this text to ask you in your, in your honest confession before the Lord, how are you wearying God or are you wearying God with your words and actions? You can find, find this on, on the bulletin provided for you or on the screen behind me. The first question is, are you wearying God with your words of justice. Are you wearying God with your words of justice? Now, to pick up in the book of Malachi, Israel has returned from exile in Babylon and they have rebuilt the temple. Uh, the exile, what it did is it corrected the blatant idolatry of Israel. 
They no longer were bowing to uh, uh, idols made with human hands, but, but their hearts weren't truly transformed. Although they were, as a nation, they were orthodox in their beliefs, their, their behavior and their actions revealed that their, 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 they really didn't have a, a strong faith in the promises of, of God. Malachi is kind of arranged with six arguments or challenges to the, to the people of God and to challenge Israel's thinking. God makes a statement, you have. Israel questions that statement, how did we say? And then God says, this is the evidence of what you did. We'll look at three of those challenges in this section. The first we see in verse 17, where we get the title from the message. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, that out of the the mouth, the heart speaks. When God is challenging their words, he's ultimately challenging their hearts of what they really believe. The Lord is wearied, he's tired, he's exhausted with the words and the actions of his people. Israel looked around at the people of their day and they were perceivingly apparent prosperity. Their their apparent prosperity of them was God's favor, God's blessings toward them. They They were saying, look around us. Everyone is doing evil and God does nothing. God must delight in them. They're doing wicked things and God seems to be showing them favor with their wealth and with their comfort. Their prosperity must mean that God approves of their behavior. Malachi then rewords this argument in this last frame by saying, it's as if they're saying, where is the God of justice? So they're only seeing with kind of an earthly eyes, a, a temporal view of things. And I challenge that we're often tempted to do the same. The Psalms explicitly tell us not to envy the wicked because we know their end. Psalm 37, 1 and 2, fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. The Asaph, and Asaph writes in Psalm 73, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Do you envy the prosperity of the wicked? Do you think about the the wicked and how they're living their lives and you think of their freedom, their their pleasure, their riches, and, and you think that they won't be punished? See, the people in Malachi, they started to believe that the actions of the wicked, the, those who are in the world, not of God, were not going to be punished, and God was not going to act because he hasn't acted yet. And because God had not acted, God therefore approved their behavior. So they started to convince themselves that their behavior was fine, and they started to actually live as if there was no judgment. They were wearying God with their words of justice. Are you? Are you wearying the Lord? God goes on to remind his people that the plan has not changed, that he will send his messenger to prepare the way for the Messiah. Look at Malachi 3.1. Behold, 
I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. This is the second, first time in, in uh, Malachi that we see this reference of the, the coming uh, messenger. We see it again in chapter 4. This messenger is referring to John the Baptist. Jesus makes this point in Matthew chapter 11, uh, verse 7. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. John the Baptist was calling people to repentance in a preparation for the coming of the Messiah, much like Malachi was doing in his day calling people to repentance about the coming promised Messiah. God's plan has not changed. He will act in and at the proper time. Look at the rest of this verse. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So the messenger, John the Baptist, will prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the messenger of the covenant in whom we delight. He is coming. Do not believe that God will not bring justice because you don't see it happening right now. God will bring justice. He is coming. See, the key question should not be whether God will bring justice, but will be able to stand when that justice comes. This is the, the point that Malachi makes, verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Uh, Malachi gives us two observations, two illustrations here, a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. The heat from the refiner's fire was meant to kind of burn off the, the dross or the, the, the unpure metal, to really purify the contents. It's very similar why we sing that great hymn of the faith, How Firm a Foundation, verse Three, when through fiery trials pathways shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume, thy gold to refine. It's what we just read in, in Hebrews chapter 12, that God disciplines those he, he loves. He, he purifies, he prunes us so that we could bear more, more fruit. See, the fuller is similar. It's, it's a fuller would wash clothing with a strong leer soap, and they would put that that the soap on the cloth and put it on rocks, and then they would beat the, the cloth with a, with a stick. This is how God purifies sinners. This is how he refines his people. He, he chastises them. He refines them. He takes them into the hallway and confronts them with their sin. This question, who can stand at his coming, his being the Messiah? 
Well, the answer is no one. We all need to be purified. We all need to be refined by the Holy Spirit so that we would be a pure and living sacrifice to the Lord, pleasing unto Him. The great promise is that Jesus comes in judgment, but He comes to be judged first for us. Now remember, the Israelites here were struggling to live pure lives before the Lord in the midst of an ungodly people that instead of being a light to the Gentile, they started to adopt the, the wicked ways of the world. They were becoming like them. And the God of justice is going to come in judgment against his own people if they live like the world. Look at verse 5. It says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Hear me, beloved. God is always a God of justice. He will always act against evil in our world and in our own hearts. Are you wearying God with your justice? Are you committing adultery in word or deed? Are you bearing false witness? Is there any deception in your words or in your life right now? Are you caring for widows and and orphans, the fatherless and the immigrant? And really, truly, do you live as if you are fearing the Lord? Is everything that you're doing in your life living in light of that day when the Lord shall come? See, so much of the conversation today about justice in our society is about that. It's about justice in our society rather than justice in our own hearts. Are we living lives of justice? Are we practicing true social justice? Meaning, are we loving our brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that would honor our Lord and Savior? Are we treating one another as, as a way that God would be pleased with us? Are we prioritizing God's eternal justice? Unlike the people in Malachi's day. Do not weary God with your words, beloved, but live in light of his coming. The second question, are you wearying God with your words of forgiveness? Are you wearying God with your words of forgiveness? The Lord continues to drive home the point that he has not changed, that he will never change. It is in his never-changing love and justice that we hope. Look at verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and I have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? See, God is always true to his promises. He is unchanging. The theological term is immutable. The great unchangeable I am that we just sang about. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he was going to bless all the families of the earth through them and the promised seed. The people of Israel continued to turn aside from the Lord's words. And yet still, the Lord, in his patient love and desire to forgive, says to us, return to me and I will return to you. Now understand that the weight of these words, 
Don't gloss over this. I think we do this way too often in the Christian life. We don't want the full scope and the weight of God's act of forgiveness to rest upon us. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to adulterers, to liars, to oppressors, to all those who live without the fear of God in their eyes. And what does God say to these wretched sinners who deserve nothing but punishment, condemnation, judgment, and eternal hell? Return. Return to me, and I will return to you. If you repent of your sins, you will be forgiven. Do you believe God when he says that? Do you believe God's words that if you return to him, you, he will be with you, he will forgive you, and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness? I think most of us, when we commit sins against God, we respond like the people in Malachi's day. How shall we return? Or, how can I return? Friend, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I, I want you to consider what, what God is saying here. He is saying that everyone has turned away from keeping his commandments, every Christian in this room included. The punishment of the sinner is to be consumed by his anger. We all deserve God's wrath, but he has promised not to consume us if we turn to him. Why? In eternity past, God made a plan of redemption to save sinners to the sending forth of his son, Jesus Christ, to take the punishment we deserve on the cross. God sent Jesus to live a perfect life, and Jesus was innocent of all evil, entirely pure. In his perfection, he chose to become a perfect sacrifice to pay for the sins of all who would trust in him. And then God publicly declared his acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice for sinners by raising him from the dead on the third day. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ answers the question, how shall we return we return to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Return to God through Jesus Christ. Friend, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, hear me. If you turn to God, you will be forgiven of your sins and made whole in Him. And you no longer have to fear the day of judgment but you can have your arms open wide and be excited for his return because he's coming to get his own. Repent of your sins and put your faith in him. Christian, believer, many of you may be wearying God with your words of forgiveness, not trusting that you are actually forgiven. You may think that there are certain sins that you've done in your life that put you outside of redemption. Do not weary God by not trusting his word. Return to him and he will return to you. If you have repented of your sins and trust in Christ's life, death, and resurrection as your only hope for salvation, you are forgiven. Period. You were bought with a price. Do not weary God saying that you can't be forgiven or that you can't be changed. If you have given your life to Christ, he's given you the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you. If the same spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, he will give life and transformation to your mortal body. It's the promise of the gospel. Remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, like our text today, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, again in our text, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. God is all about forgiveness and redemption in Christ. He has not changed. You will not be consumed if you are in Christ. You were washed, beloved. You were sanctified. You were justified by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of Almighty God. Do not weary him by saying you can't be forgiven. He says you will be. He hasn't changed. Third question. Are you wearying God with your words of giving? Are you wearying God with your words of giving? One of the indicators that God's people were not trusting in him was, was how they handled their, their money and their, their wealth. Look at verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. The nation of Israel was commanded to give a tithe or a tenth of their resources to the Lord to care for the temple and the priesthood. It actually, the, the, the giving actually came before the law in Genesis chapter 14 when Abraham met that mysterious Melchizedek on the road. Instead of giving the, the full tithe, the, the people of God in Malachi's day were holding back a portion for themselves. And the consequence of holding back uh, was their, their land was struck with a curse and they were not producing the yield of food for, to care for their needs. Now let me just say this, God does not need your money. He wants your heart. That's why he asks you to give. God answers the question, how shall you return by saying, stop robbing God. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Jesus says something very similar in Matthew chapter 6. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves trusses on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. See, in Malachi's day, they were not bowing to the physical idols of the Asherah pole to Baal, but they were still bowing down to the God of money, like many in our day. God wants your heart, so he tells you to give your treasure. If you give God your treasure, he will then become your treasure. And if you withhold your treasure from him, your heart will be divided. You cannot serve God and money. And too often we so often try to. There are multiple promises here in bringing the tithe into the storehouse besides mere economic prosperity. God wants to bless Israel as a means to bless all the nations. Look at verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. 
I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So the people are robbing God of the full tithe, and therefore they're experiencing economic hardships. Now, they thought that if I held back money for myself, that it would actually be better off. But the crops were being destroyed by some devourer. We don't know what kind of animal or bug it was. The yield was not producing enough food to feed the people. So God says, I, I, I want you to trust me. I'm inviting you to trust me by giving me your money. And one of the charges brought against the people, as we just read, that they weren't caring for widows, they weren't caring for the fatherless and the, the immigrant, the sojourner in the land. So God wants the nation to have what they need so they can care for and feed and be a blessing to all the nations. We see that in verse 10. Pour, I will pour down for you a blessing until there is not more need. No more need. As one scholar notes, God will meet our needs, not our greeds. He will meet our needs not only so that we'd be satisfied, but that the promise of Abraham would be fulfilled. Look at verse 12. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Listen, the end goal of God's care for his people is never meant to only care for his people. He cares for us so that we can care for others. If you sit here in this sermon and you are edified and you are strengthened and you feel great when you leave this place, but if you hold it to yourself and you don't serve those in your life, you don't share with those in your life, it did not fully accomplish what God meant for it to accomplish. God wants to bless us so that we could bless the nations. He wants the world to see a community who gives generously so that we do not have any lack, so that people would want to know the God that we serve. We see that in, that's the hope in Malachi's day. So when we give, we get God. Let me say that again. When we give, our heart starts to go more and more towards the Lord. And when we get God, we give the world a glimpse of God's glory. Now, today I'm not going to go into the, the difference between Old Testament and New Testament giving and how Christ fulfills the law and the implications for the New Testament. Keith, I'm happy to discuss that with you later, um, or anybody else, if you will. Um, but I just want to hammer home this point. Give to the Lord, and you get the Lord. That, that, that's the point of giving. You, you don't give so that you would kind of have this monetary blessing. I give, therefore God has to bless me. No, God wants to give you himself. This is one of the means in which he gives you himself is you give your treasure away to him. And he says, listen, we give not to get blessings from the Lord ourselves. We give to give the Lord to be a blessing to all people. You know, I'm so grateful for the generosity that God's people have given here at Park. Uh, our budget has been phenomenal over these last several uh, years. Um, and because of the generosity of God's people here, we've been able to be, a, I think, a greater blessing to our community and to the nations. Giving is, is one way we show our trust and dependence upon the Lord. We give to his work so that the nations will call us blessed and they want to know the God we serve. So I, I don't know what each one of you give, and I don't really want to know, but I want you, maybe you to go before the Lord and ask this question. Are you wearying God with your giving? Or are you delighting him? Are you delighting in him in your 
giving. Your giving reveals your treasure. You cannot serve both God and money. So serve God and yet give generously. Number four, are you wearying God with your words of serving? Are you wearying God with your words of serving? Uh, The people were losing hope in the value of serving God. They started to believe that all their efforts were in vain. I really think if you look at the beginning of this section we went to, all the way to the end of it, a lot of it's the same idea. It's God's people don't trust God's word. They don't think God's going to make good on his promises. That's the overall arching theme. Look at verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain, empty, futile to serve God. What is it? What is the profit of keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. It's as if they're reversing the words that Jesus shares in the Gospels. They're basically saying, what does it profit a man to walk with God if I don't gain the whole world? Why should I bother serving God if I'm not going to get what I want? These people were not experiencing financial and physical blessings of the wicked. So they're throwing their hands up and say, what's the point? Why do I even bother serving God? Have you ever been like that? What's the point of serving in the nursery? Why do I do these things behind the scenes when no one seems to appreciate it? What's the point of praying for my kids when they don't change? Why do I teach Sunday school when no one new comes? Why do I try to be a faithful employee when those who don't work as hard as me and don't care as much are are promoted before me? Why are the players who always show up late to practice are the ones starting? Listen, do not believe those lies. You are not serving to be seen by men. You are serving the Lord of hosts. The Lord sees what you are doing in secret and he will reward you. Your service for the Lord God is never Never in vain. God will use your service for him to bring him glory. And it will help others see that glory. And your service may help people bend their knee in repentance and call Jesus Lord. Do not be weary in well-doing. For if you do not give up, you will reap a harvest. Last question. Are you wearying God with your words of him? Are you wearying God with your words of him? Really, this whole entire message is just very simple. Is It's just, what do you think about the Lord? You know, I'm not talking about what, what are you saying that you think about the Lord? You know, conversations with friends, even, if, even your spouse. I'm talking about in your heart of hearts, in your quiet space, in your own mind. Thoughts you don't, may not even verbalize. What do you believe about the Lord God? What do you think about him? There'll be, there be ways that you're tempted to doubt his goodness. Maybe your words against him have wearied him. Listen, God loves you. He cares for you. He sent his son to die for you. He purchased you with his own blood. Do not doubt his love for you. Do not think that since you see the wicked prospering, that God won't hold them accountable. Do not think that that there's any sin in your life that can keep you from being forgiven and redeemed. If you return to him, he will return to you. God delights in forgiving sinners. He came not for the healthy, but for the sick. 
Do not withhold your wealth from the Lord. Put him to the test with your wealth. Give him your first fruits. And see if God does not give you greater joy, greater peace, and greater comfort in your relationship with him. God wants to use you to bless others, and he wants to bless you more so that you can bless others more. Beloved, I am not merely concerned with how you are living. I'm not concerned with how much you give. I'm not only concerned with how much time, how often you darken the doors of the church. I am concerned with what you think about the Lord God. I'm concerned when you wake up in the morning, what's your first thought? When you go to bed at night, what is your first, what is your last thought? When you think about that trial in your life, what are you thinking? When that temptation comes at you, when you, when you feel that condemnation from this world, do you trust in Christ? What do you truly believe? Not just what you want others to think you believe. We want to be real and genuine with what we believe before the Lord. So are you wearying God with your words about him? Or are you delighting in him? Hear the words of what God says of those who delight in fearing his name. Look at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Listen to what the Lord says. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see to the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Friends, you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. You will see the distinction between those who serve God and those who do not. Do not envy the wicked, for you know their end. Do not doubt the Lord. Do not weary him. Delight in him. Do you believe, really believe, that God is good and that he loves you? You who fear God, who keep his commandments, who trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Lord says to you, you shall be mine. You are my treasured possession. Beloved, that is far more than we deserve. You are his, and he is yours. You are his treasured possession. And I just pray you'd spend the rest of your life making him yours. Father, I pray for these people whom I love that they would not weary you with their words, that they would delight in Christ. They would delight in you. I pray that they would hear those words again, God, that you are their, they are your treasured possession, God, and I pray that they would spend the rest of their life in serving, in giving, in making you their ultimate treasure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.